Welcome on into the show. My name is Denny Gallagher, and I'm joined by the Snare Campaign Provocateur, Mr. I Wouldn't Take a Discount Even to Play with Belichick. It's Benny Horowitz. That one kind of suck, but whatever. How's it going, man? Happy 4th of July week. Thank you. You too. I'm feeling very patriotic. <laughs> um, I don't know. You know, remember, as a Giants fan, we have a different relationship with Bill Belichick. Yeah. He was our defensive coordinator for a Super Bowl, so we very much liked him in the 80s. And then, remember, the he Patriots have taken a couple L's, mm. the big blue wrecking crew. <laughs> It's like there's 31 other teams that could be upset with the Patriots, but Giants, we don't care so much. <laughs> we just catch balls off the helmet and break their hearts. So I'm feeling pretty good about the Belichick era and the standing as a Giants fan. By the way, yeah. I just learned this. I had no idea that David Tyree owns like a juice place in Morristown now. Is that right? I had no idea. I had no idea about this until recently. Yeah, he owns like 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 a health food juice place in Morristown. Talk about, I mean, profiting off of 15 seconds of fame, but good for I him. I mean, if it's just like a regular old juice place, but if he has like specialty juices called like the Sticky Helmet. And they've got like merch that. that says 18 to 1 on it. I mean, what more could you want? I mean... All you had to say was David Tyree in, <laughs> in New Jersey, and I'll go spend my money there. Oh, you man. Know? You, know what, you know what doesn't get enough credit in that scenario, though? It's like, it's like everything, the thing that people hate about Eli, the fact that he threw so many picks, that is like the classic Eli story because like 29 out of 30 quarterbacks don't even make that throw. Right. They don't even try. They don't even shove it into the middle of the <laughs> field and let anybody go get it and care that little about interceptions that they will. So knew he had to make a play. Remember, it's like the one time Eli almost like scrambled <laughs> and like got out from a little from a little fire in the pocket and still let it go. So I think Tyree gets all the love, but not many people are shoving that wobbly ball into the middle of the field more than Eli Manning, who just didn't care about throwing picks. <laughs> and, you know, when you look at his career stats, his interceptions are always used against him, but he was he was uh, Brett Farvian in that way, Joe Namathy in that way, where he just threw it up there. If you needed a play, you needed a play, and he didn't care about the pick. So Eli deserves a little credit for that. And by the way, I bring this up because the big news from over the weekend, Cam Newton signing with the Patriots. We'll wow. get all into all of this in just a little bit. But first, it's time for This Day in Music History. Do, 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 do. In 1957, Buddy and the Holly and the Crickets released Peggy Sue, one of the first most classic rock songs in history, wrote up the charts, became a major hit. But the story about it is kind of fun. They went to high school in Lubbock, Texas, Buddy Holly and his drummer, Jerry Allison, one of the original Crickets. And apparently they were driving around in Jerry Allison's car with a guitar, which was something they used to do. And Buddy Holly had a song called Cindy Lou. And Cindy Lou was kind of in this vibe. And Jerry Allison was trying to impress a girl from school named Peggy Sue and convinced him to change it to Peggy Sue. <laughs> so you'd think that's a cute enough story. But then apparently it worked because Jerry Allison and Peggy Sue Guerin got married. And they were married through most of the 60s. <laughs> and she toured with the crickets after Buddy Holly's death. 
and actual Peggy Sue was part of the was married to Jerry Allison, the drummer, and um, and part of their touring in the '60s. Wow. And then on a, uh, a a funny note about her life, she moved back to California. She became a dental assistant after they became divorced, hmm. remarried, had two more kids, and somehow became the first female licensed plumber in the state of California. Wow. Uh, so she had a cool life, Peggy Sue Guerin, <laughs> and she lived to 78 and only passed away a couple years ago and told the story. So Peggy Sue, pretty cool. Look at you with the crickets, the crickets, and you have that thing. Blech. Oh, my goodness. The audio the visual there. Oh, that was perfect. <laughs> yes. I was like, wait a minute. Wow, that's weird. Benny wow. has drops? Oh, my God. <laughs> Buddy Holly and the... What does that mean, Denny? That the crickets just spoke Oh, that's me. for you and Madame Marie to figure out in your next therapy. Oh, session. man. Oh. I got to dig into this. Maybe I have some weird connection to Peggy Sue. Oh, wow. <laughs> oh, no. Okay. I'm a little freaked out now. Uh, the rest of the episode, I'm yeah, gonna. Me, me too. My head's we, gonna be murky. We've reached a paranormal state for this, which which scares me to bring up my this day in music history because I'm talking about a guy who Benny wants banned from the pod uh, forever. I guess on this day in 1975, the Jackson Five announced that they're leaving Motown <laughs> Records for Epic Records. The brothers were forced to change their name to the Jacksons since Motown owned the name the Jackson Five. But also, Benny, on a quick double feature for 1975 on this day in 1975, Cher married Greg Allman four days after divorcing Sonny Bomo. The couple wow. then split ten days after followed oh. by a three-year on-and-off marriage. So this okay. day in 1975, crazy. That is wild. It's funny you said that, because when you said Cher married Greg Allman, I was like, I had no idea about that. Oh. But I guess it didn't last very long. <laughs> One of those proper hot... <laughs> I, did, yeah, why do you keep bringing up Michael Jackson when we put this declaration on the show? I thought he was done. It's a great... We out. <laughs> Only Jackson 5 is safe? <laughs> Anything pre-off-the-wall uh, is safe, okay. right? Okay, <laughs> okay. pre-off-the-wall Jackson's allowed. I got it now. Now that I know the rules, that's fine. All right, so I have one more, another bizarre yeah. story. You know, because of the history of this podcast, I'm a, uh, an un, unwieldy Deep Purple fan. Yeah. You, can't, you can't get Deep Purple out of my soul. And I never knew that in this day in 1973, Ian Gillum, singer for... Uh, Deep Purple, left Deep Purple. Hmm. Now, some people from the outside assume this was a very quick thing and he just bounced the band, but the story is much more interesting and kind of sad. So it was, he wrote in his own letter, and I quote right now, it was bizarre actually because I had actually in, handed in my letter of resignation to the band months earlier when we were in Dayton, Ohio. I told them I intended to leave Purple at the end of the next tour. And nobody said anything to him. Nobody addressed the letter he wrote to the band. Then they went ahead and kept working on their new album. They went to Japan in June 73. Last date was in Osaka on the 29th. It was the end of the touring schedule. Still, no one said a word to him. They got on stage. They did the gig. And he left. He left the venue on his own. He went back to the hotel. There were no goodbyes from anyone connected to Deep Purple. None of the guys in the band, crew, management. Um, he said that this is where he gets a hero. I never expected a farewell gift or emotional outburst, but just to ignore the whole thing was really weird. 
Um, he also went on to say that, uh, you know, he left the airport by himself, got on a flight alone and came back home. It was as if the moment I came off stage, I was no longer regarded as a member of the band, therefore tended to myself. Once I got back to England, I half expected somebody from the band to phone. However, nobody did. They mm -hmm. moved on. Eventually, Roger Glover did call to tell me he'd been fired from Deep Purple. So this is a bizarre story yeah. where, you know, uh, apparently they were in such a bad place as a band that even with like, first off, writing a letter of res resignation yeah. to your band <laughs> is pretty interesting anyway. But to, to not even address it, no goodbye, or no even like, fuck you, I hate you, yeah. was, was really strange. Um, he even wrote, again, in the same piece, I never said anything after the gig. It just didn't feel right that I should say something. The atmosphere at the time in purple was just horrible. And for me, it was just such a relief to have it done and dusted. To understand what was going on in the band, you'd need to be a trained psychologist. <laughs> Everyone in the lineup at the time behaved like an asshole. And I am including myself here. I was as bad as the rest of them. So this is where I've seen bands at this state. And I know it's like a hard thing to kind of conceptualize how you could actually be around four other people that you create music with and go on stage with and have no communication with. Right. And I think the thing that people, like when you look at a band, especially one that's been going for a long time, you have to look at it as like family or like people in the military or like something strange like that. Cause there's no other situation where you take grown-ups with their separate problems, separate ideals, separate family, separate morality, and put them together for the sake of one, you know, uh, one goal. Yeah. And the thing that can happen in that that people don't realize is like, you know, you know how you can get in like a big fight with your brother, or sister, parents, say something awful, mm. and get off the phone, but you know you're going to talk to them again. Right. You know, you know, in a couple days, you're just going to get back to it and you don't really say anything. And I think that's the dynamic people need to realize that happens in bands is like it gets so close that he's right. You would need a trained psychologist to come in and start picking through the onions of layers mm. to even know what the fuck is going on by the time the hardcore stuff is going on. That's why I will forever give Metallica credit for making that ridiculous some kind of monster documentary because what kind of band not only takes their band and goes to counseling first off, like that's sort of an awesomely Californian self-aware thing that Metallica did, but then makes a documentary out of it. Basically like is showing the most embarrassing things you could possibly do. But again, just like the Napster thing and this Metallica might've been ahead of their time as far as, uh, recognizing mental health and counseling inside of the music industry because no one else fucking did anything like that and they were just berated for it for like 20 years and so, uh, they're probably also leading the music business and having therapists that think that they're also part of metallica yeah yeah <laughs> who got a million dollars signing bonus like the bass player yeah but uh yeah interesting thing with ian gillum deep purple i never yeah. knew it left like that but also i read the story and i'm like that is sad but I can see how it plays out like that. Yeah. I really can. It's a strange situation. It's like how someone could be teammates with someone else for like eight seasons 
and then you ask an interview like 20 years later, be like, yeah, he was, he's a good guy. Yeah. And we didn't talk much after he left. Like you spent every day together for eight yeah. years, you know, but sometimes like it, it means more to some people than others. And that hurts less to some people than others. And that hurts. And you just wind up with this murky mess. No one knows what to do with, you know? It's so funny because I feel like people are always like, oh, like bands are like best friends and all of that stuff. But I feel like oddly enough, and hear me out here, I feel like so Rob Lowe on a recent podcast, because Rob Lowe's in the podcast game now, was talking about like the Brat Pack. And he was right. talking about his relationship with like Tom Cruise. Be like, you know, I don't really talk to him, but like he's like my like quote unquote fraternity brother. It's like, right. uh, like we may stumble into each other at some event and you always kind of have that connection. So it may not be so familial, best friend ish, but I don't think most people can understand that really. Yeah. I mean, you came from the same place and you understand each other. Yeah. You know, that's part of it. But it's also the same thing as, um, you know, how, uh, like, let's say maintaining a dynasty in sports right. is so hard. And one of the reasons it's so hard is literally that that mental fatigue, that being able to keep grown people on the same page where they're all looking at the same goal and nobody diverts and no one spreads from that. That's why I think when you get these heights with bands with teams with things like that you really need to be in the moment recognize the fact that you're seeing something special because it's it's almost unattainable um and the only time it lasts is like when you have a greg popovich when you have a bill belichick who are basically like bill belichick's like mike ness from social distortion you know what i mean yeah. like he's the patriots mike ness is social distortion and you know you can put a bunch of different people under their thing, but it's still, you're going to play social distortion songs. You know what I mean? Yeah. It doesn't matter where you came from. And I, I feel like, you know, some people can pull it off with those really big uh, magnanimous leaders and stuff like that. But, you know, the psychological murkiness that goes into things like this, especially when people are going from almost teenagers to adults uh, roaming adults to adults with responsibilities and then taking all that into account. It's a virtual, uh, it's a stew. It's a <laughs> stew of a mess. <laughs> well, speaking of psychological murkiness, Benny, first topic today, the Rolling Stones, Donald Trump, lawsuit, battleground, court, Ugh. lawyers, all of the things. That's right. The British band is suing the Trump campaign for use of their songs during events rallies what have you benny i i kind of want to make this a bigger conversation here because we saw the tom petty family make a statement about using songs his songs at political events and stuff like that and all too often i feel like these days for both sides of the aisle you see bands not wanting politicians to be using their songs and right, rightly so but i want to get into you about use and What's okay? What's acceptable? And how much control do these bands really have? I mean, I think I think you nailed it. Where that's the point. So you know, I hear this story, and my first reaction is, "What's fucking new?" Hmm. This happens with everyone. Every single presidential campaign I've seen, you know, since I've been cognizant, has run into something like this. And like you said, they clearly don't give a fuck <laughs> because they they keep doing it. Yeah. And at this point, you know, I wonder in the Trump camp, 
that they know that they can do it with such impunity that they're literally choosing artists that they're kind of trolling in a way. Mm. You know what I mean? Like, like they even did it to Neil Young. Neil Young couldn't be more of an outward fucking hippie than anybody in rock literally wrote a song uh, called Southern man, you know, like about the South. And so it, it makes me think that uh, they're almost trolling a, a certain kind of artist because they know they can do it. Yeah. And I think that's the point is uh, I think it makes it more apparent how shitty the protections are for bands and their songs. Um, and to the point that after a certain amount of time and your song is out in a certain amount of places, it's almost impossible to protect uh, the Trump rally and things like this can claim that they're not making any money off the use of the song, which I think starts to make it murky. If you really wanted to process it in court, who are you actually suing? Once you sue, you're probably, the peanuts you would get back and like ASCAP royalties or something from being played at a stadium would be measly in comparison to how much it would cost to prosecute the whole thing. And the fact that you'd probably lose anyway. Mm. So I think that's why you keep seeing cease and desists, but you're not seeing lawsuits because I don't think people can sue for it and they know it now. So I think, like you said, this is a, um, a gouging example of, the lack of protection in music and especially with stuff like this. I mean, the thing is that, that kind of I get a kick out of is the fact that like, you know, some of these people are dying to be culturally relevant so bad and they're basically rejecting everything cool in pop culture. You know, it's like if you really want to be consistent with your movement, then fucking just play Kid Rock, play Ted Nugent, mm -hmm play three doors down and play every fucking country artist that supports you. Those are basically your options now. Yeah. Just stay away from all our stuff. If you want to make that line in the sand and you want to go over to that side, you know, fuck you. I can't argue with you. You make your choices, but you don't get this cool music. <laughs> you don't get it anymore. Sorry. Enjoy crew cut rock and country. Cause that's all you're getting dog. Suck a dick. Sorry. You know, I feel it's not like yours anymore. <laughs> I feel like it's funny because yes, the bands can like send like the cease and the cease, they can even sue, but it's still in that moment, they still have Trump come out to won't back down or like some right. or like no satisfaction or something like that. It. So like you can't take away the moment. It's on video, like because as, as all these things are. So it's really interesting with in, in just in terms of use, because like I know for podcasts, like we can't play licensed songs for more than like 30 seconds even if you get to 25 seconds it can right. get dicey and they're playing it for a whole lot longer than that because they want it to be like a festival and not like hey we're going to talk about taxes for two hours i you know it'd be funny though is like why don't you know this is where like democrats and liberals just never they never play dirty enough it's like you don't understand the game i want to see like ocasio cortez like start coming out to like fucking George Strait songs or like something like that and trolling the other side, you know, like the, uh, you know, speak English or die crowd, like take those, take those songs and put it on like, uh, 
some liberal rallies and stuff and just try to have some fun with it, you know? I then love they, it. Maybe they'll stop messing around a little more. <laughs> well, I don't know. You got to fight fire with fire. But listen, <laughs> this is a cultural fork in the road. If you want to be conservative, you don't get cool fucking music anymore. Sorry. That's it. Get out of here. <laughs> All right, well, speaking of movements and cultural relativeness, Benny, sports were back this weekend, and the charge was led by arguably one of the most progressive leagues we have in this country, the National Women's Soccer League, and they convened in Utah to start their Challenge Cup. They're not going to have a full season because of COVID-19, but they're all in the bubble. It's really the first uh, display of all of that happening. But what's interesting and why I I bring this up is the first game between the North Carolina Courage and the Portland Thorns. All of the players on the team knelt during the, while the anthem was played. Uh, The league made it perfectly clear through their social channels and through the PA announcer in the stadium that they stand with Black Lives Matter. A real league coming out in support of this movement. Really the first one in uh, on such a public national TV way. This game was on CBS. So I just think it's a interesting moment, and I just wanted to give a, a major shout-out to them. They did kind of step in it a, a little bit. In one of the later games that happened this weekend, all of the teams continued to do it. They took a snapshot of Julie Ertz hugging her teammate as she was like kind of crying during during the anthem when everybody was kneeling. She got very emotional. And what did they do? They took that picture and tried to monetize it as on the highlight reel on their Twitch page. So that's not a great look. But other than that, I feel like the NWSL has handled finding a, a message, finding a voice, sticking to it, and really trying to be leaders outside of just being the first league back. Yeah, yeah, I think that's what you want to see is sort of like blanket commitment to something from all parties involved. I think the one thing that would be a little bit of like a reductionist point of view is to say that, you know, they can make this kind of statement as easily as someone who plays in the NFL or is in NASCAR or something like that because, you know, I don't have the demographics for this league, but I'm going to go ahead and assume a very popular player like Carrie Lloyd or something takes a knee that they're not really hurting their bottom line. Like I got to imagine that the base of this league kind of leans towards the political side that they're on. Yeah. Um, not to say that their message should be diluted for that, but to say that someone who plays in a uh, Southern city in the NFL or somebody who plays or is a NASCAR driver or something uh, isn't literally making that decision and burning their own money. Yeah. They are, you know, and you got to give those people credit for that step that they take in making it. But that being said, uh, you should never put money and capitalism over people's lives and the things that are happening out there. So the fact that you've had these diluted responses from uh, a lot of people who kind of have the Michael Jordan school of thought, Republicans buy shoes too. Mm. And I need to stay as firmly in the middle, answer questions like Derek Jeter, where I just say we went out there and gave it 110% and never actually say anything. You know, I think that's like a cultural problem in these other major sports that um, I think we're starting to break out from. And the cool thing about these leagues and women as usually, you know, being uh, the leaders of a movement and and which is usually the way it goes down. But Hmm. basically what I'm trying to say 
is that I give them a lot of credit for what they did. Yeah. And I think I'd like to see a lot more leagues not only have like, hey, you're a player, you're allowed to do what you want, but having it where the league is actually supporting the player's movement and being behind it. And I think you see a lot more unilateral change if that was the case. So a lot of credit to them for taking that stand. All right, Benny, next topic. Over the weekend, Bill Belichick and the Patriots are at it again, as we alluded to before, and they signed Cam Newton to the team. The heir apparent to Mr. Tom Brady himself is coming from Charlotte to the Boston area. And Benny, a lot, lot of ways to go with this. Cam was uh, the 2015 NFL MVP the five years since. Hasn't exactly... You know, he's suffered from a lot of injuries, lack of production, lack of lack of really good leadership by Dave Gettleman. But that's a whole other conversation. Yeah. Um, but, Benny, what do you make of this? Where do the Patriots go from here? A uh, lo- lot of incentives for Cam Newton to outshine a- everybody else, win the job in camp. So really incentive-based contract. What do you make of this move for everybody involved? I mean, firstly, I think the fact that Cam Newton basically got the league minimum with an incentive-laden deal that caps him at $7.5 million is fucking peanuts in the NFL, especially for someone of his caliber. So people like Richard Sherman talking about what that's really about, there could be some truth to that. I mean, the fact of the matter is if Cam Newton plays, plays basically starts every game and hits all of his incentives, he's still going to be paid less than 26 other quarterbacks in the NFL. And less so, than Antonio Brown took for one game. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So that's where, I mean, uh, it sucks for Cam Newton that it came to that, but also is a steal for the Patriots. Yeah. I think it's a sign that they obviously don't want to tank, and they think they can win now. And I think Bill Belichick and Kraft have no interest in, like, bumming through a couple seasons. That's just not the Patriots way. And I think they saw enough in the rest of the team uh, and waited it out long enough because of the pandemic that they were able to put it through. I mean, we forget Cam Newton's 31 years old. Yeah, He's dying to win a Super Bowl more than most because he had a butthead play in a Super Bowl that he'll never stop taking shit for unless he gets one. Um, as you said, he's, he's only five seasons removed from a 15-1 and MVP season. In 2018, he threw for uh, 3,400 yards in 14 games on a 68% completion percentage with awful receivers. And then he got hurt. Uh, 19 is pretty much a wash because Mm. he was hurt for the entire year. So this idea that uh, his skill level was that diminished, I think, is wrong. He's obviously a big personality, someone you have to take into the fold uh, in your team. But the only thing that's diminished over the last three, four years has been his rushing, which, as it should at this point in his career, when do you see (laughs) 31-year-old quarterbacks really staying on the fly like that? Like, you don't. So if you plug a guy with his skill level into that Tom Brady-ish system, Tom Brady never got fucking hit. Yeah. You know what I mean? You sit in there, you got your check downs, your screens, and you let Cam run inside of that and he takes less hits. That might be a way to keep him healthy longer. So I actually think it's uh, pretty promising for Patriots fans and just pretty exciting in general for the NFL. My thing with this, this is classic Bill Belichick right here. This is a classic Patriots way thing. 
these guys that are free agents can't take visits to the team. No mm -hmm. physicals being done. You can't see anything. Uh, so Be Belichick's like, oh, I'm going to take this just under $2 million flyer on a former NFL MVP. Yes, please. Yes, please. Uh, he's yeah. kind of needed the bounce back after Gronk was like, I want to have fun playing football. Brady was like, right. I want to have fun playing football. Belichick needed this win in, in a big way. And maybe he put it, the Patriots in a better position than a lot of other teams that have been on this slow build for a while. I definitely think that they now currently have a better quarterback situation than the Giants. I mean, people are just hoping that Daniel Jones is going to blossom into a superstar. I don't think it, like, like you got to have some, some pedigree and talent and people to work with you. Oh, and not, not, none of that is happening in East Rutherford, New Jersey oh, right now. Oh my God. I don't know why <laughs> you're, you're taking one point. That's not a good point right now. You're taking a, a guy going into his second year who threw for 4,000 yards in his rookie season uh, on a pretty bad team with no receivers. So, I don't like your point. We're going to throw that one but, out. But you like the point about Bill Belichick sitting back, guys can't take visits, and next yeah. thing you know, he's signing a 2015 NFL MVP. And, and I think you use the, the most important word in this, which is it's fun. Yeah. It's fun. It makes the Patriots fun. Yeah. Cam Newton is fun. Like, you know, to me, that, that adds a little cayenne pepper <laughs> to a bowl of just bland potato soup. <laughs> You know what I mean? Like now the Patriots are a little fucked. And and I like that. The other thing that's getting buried in this, very similarly to uh, to the Yankees cheating that nobody cares about, <laughs> is the same day the deliberation for the Patri for the Patriots scandal last year came down. Yeah. And nobody's even talking about it. The Patriots were fined a million dollars, docked a third round pick and are banning their TV crews for a season for illegally taping the Bengals' sideline last December. So the one thing I got to wonder now is we already know Robert Kraft is shady. We already know Belichick is very tight-lipped, kind of like the consigliere. <laughs> I wonder if Cam is going to have to take some sort of backroom meeting where he swears his loyalty and, most importantly, his silence to be a Patriot. Because you know there's you know Tom Brady is like a former US president. Like he knows so much. He could take the machine down if he wanted. But twenty years of sworn loyalty to the machine, you're scared about what's gonna happen if you break off. I mean you know? I think Cam is uh being like he's probably in like a back room in uh Wooster somewhere right no. now, being shown like video snippets of like Patriots victories and, and hmm. Boston successes and saying that the big dig and things like that are, are not even real fake news well, and just getting him totally, uh, totally patriated. To the well, if we've learned anything from Cam Newton's college career is that backroom deals are kind of him and his family's specialty. I mean, there's a reason Auburn doesn't have a national championship anymore, but the thing that I, love w w with this about how you brought up the punishment for the Patriots uh, Spygate 3, I don't know is that apparently you can survey anybody if you're a giant corporation and just call oh we're making a docu-series that, right. that's what you can yeah. do these days, it's crazy it's a new precedent <laughs> you can just take whoever's music you want, you can film whoever you want, take a picture of their face use it somewhere else <laughs> 
Did I ever tell you about that time that Peter, or no, excuse me, I, I almost said Peter Tosh, the cool <laughs> one. I mean, Daniel Tosh, the fucking piece of shit. Did I ever tell you that that guy used my picture randomly to show uh, what a, a pedophile looks like on his show? Oh, for real? This is a funny story, okay? We can end the show on this funny story. So Gaslight's touring in Australia. And last night of the tour, no more shows. So I'm at a bar in Australia. I think, I think we were in Melbourne. And I order a Laphroaig, which is a nice scotch. Happens to be very smoky and peaty, kind of the way I like it. I order a nice, neat Laphroaig. And the guy goes, oh, really? Pedophile's mouthwash, huh? I'm like, whoa, fella. Like, that's not a great accusation to make. I know you're trying to be a sassy Australian here, like taking my pants off. But, you know, let's slow that down. Give me my drink, okay? So that happens. Then I get on a flight. And, you know, an Australian flight is like, you know, 78 hours. And I land in New Jersey or New York. I forget where. Turn on my phone and I just have a flood of text messages. I'm like, what the fuck is going on here? And then I see a picture of myself from a show in a black shirt with a toothpick in my mouth because I used to play with a toothpick in my mouth. I often have a toothpick in my mouth. It's a habit I started when I quit smoking in my 20s. And I'm like, what the fuck is this? Who, what's going on here? And I find out that the Daniel Tosh show, Tosh.0, the night before, had been doing a series on the fact that like people who chew toothpicks are pedophiles. And randomly took my picture off the fucking internet, Googled guy with toothpick in his mouth and used my face as the example on his show. So just unfounded out of nowhere within 24 hours, I was privately and publicly made to be something awful. Uh, so like you said, the world can just take your picture, take your story and just spit you out if they feel like it. You get off a flight and all of a sudden you're a predator. You know, Daniel Tosh, come on the tune up. You coward. You do the web redemptions all the time. Come on this show. Dead to <laughs> me. I always hated that Vineyard Vines, like Central California uppity comedy anyway, like that rich white guy comedy. And then he did that. And I'm like, oh, dead to me, Daniel Tosh. Don't you ever. He doesn't know who the fuck I am, but don't you ever look at me again. <laughs> I'm basically gaslight fan. <laughs> <laughs> Putting whiskey in contact with the show, you can email us at the tuneup podcast, two p's in there at gmail.com. You can follow us at the tuneup HQ on Twitter and Instagram. You can follow him on Twitter at Benny Horowitz1. Number one in your mind, number one in your heart, number one on Twitter. I'm at Teddy underscore Gallagher. Benny, you got anything else? You know what's funny? Is I'm I'm doing this show with you so long. I see your little smile and your eyes go up is because you knew you just got your sound bite. <laughs> You're like, oh, I know exactly where to edit this time for my video. I just okay. got you just gotta add tag the right people that it'll you blow know, we've up. Already, yeah, we've already had some problems with this where I've been afraid to start fights with certain people, you know? But Daniel Tosh, that's fair game. Even though he's probably a lot funnier and wittier than me, it's like kind of don't want to go one-on-one -on -one with him but he can know I, I i still think it was a dick move and he can know that he can know that dick move daniel oh you know? man i don't know how many more people in high places we need to keep pissing off with this show but that's okay 
What do you, isn't that the Barstool Sports way? Oh, God, know. okay, okay. Benny, you got anything else? We'll get out uh, of here. <laughs> everyone, stay safe out there. Wear a fucking mask. Black Lives Matter. Everybody love everybody. This has been The Two Notes.